Hello everyone, this is Flo. And this is Jesse. And welcome to the Great War Supporter Podcast, End of the Decade Edition. That sounds ominous. Yeah, but guess what? If the decade ends in the 21st century for us, it also ends for the Great War because, you know, the 100 years thing. Yo, don't scare people. Like, we're, we're going on to the next decade. Yeah. Just, just in case anybody got, got scared there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And we will talk a bit, about, a bit more about that uh, uh, today. Um, as it turns out, it's a bit hard to convince people to take time for an interview uh, one week before Christmas. So it was a bit uh, somewhat impossible to get an expert for, for an uh, interview. But I'm sure uh, they will be all motivated in January. New Year's resolutions, man. Do podcasts. Do more podcasts, yes. But what we did instead is we took some time to answer Patreon questions. Yes. And I think we should start with that. Let's do that. Uh, the first question was about Russian helmets. All right. The first question is from Dominic Omar Goni. I hope I pronounced that right. Hey guys, I always wondered how come the Russians never had their own helmets during the war? Did they not have the means to produce a lot on their own? What was the cause? I like the wordplay of means to produce here. <laughs> Indeed. It's a, a bit of a subliminal foreshadowing of, uh, of Russia's fate. Well, uh, I mean, Russia did have quite a well-developed metal industry. They produced lots and lots of artillery pieces and all sorts of other metal, other metal stuff uh, for the war. Rifles. Rifles, uh, supplies, barbed wire, etc., etc. So if they had designed a helmet, they had some capacity to produce it. But why reinvent the wheel when your friends, the French, have already invented a perfectly usable Adrian helmet in 1915. Now, at the beginning of the war, none of the armies really had helmets. And uh, once they started to be developed in uh, Germany and France and Britain primarily, the Russians still had some of the hesitations that existed also in those other countries at first. Um, so like the Tsar and the High Command, they were worried that developing helmets would somehow have a negative effect on the martial spirit and martial appearance of the soldiers. Obviously, in retrospect, uh, it's hard to see how a soldier can be very martial when his skull has been compromised by a piece of shrapnel or a bullet, but that was the thinking at the time. Nonetheless, uh, cooler heads prevailed or smarter heads prevailed in Russia and there was a government, uh, a group of government officials, they went to France, they investigated about this new technology, the Adrian helmet, and the French showed them all these, uh, all these tests that they had done, all these statistics, showing that the things actually worked, and they really reduced uh, head wounds. So uh, these guys came back to Russia, they tried to convince the Tsar and Alexeyev, who was the, the top general at the time, hey look, we, we really do need these helmets. So. Previously, they'd ordered uh, 15,000 as, as a test, even though they didn't really believe in them. But after this commission came back from France, they ordered uh, 2 million. And then they ordered a million and a half or something after that. It was kind of hard to deliver them, uh, given the port situation up north. But eventually, about 2 million made it into Russia. Most of them were painted uh, French Bleu Horizon, so Horizon Blue, so they didn't quite match the Russian uniforms in many cases, although later ones sometimes did. 
uh, because the French colonial troops then had brown uniforms similar to the Russians, blah, blah. Um, but essentially, two million was still not enough to equip the entire Russian army, uh, which had a lot more than, than two million soldiers. But they did issue those to frontline units. They were used in combat in 1916 and 1917, and then they were still used, sort of recycled and used in the Russian Civil War. Although it was never the case that a majority of uh, Russian-speaking soldiers in whatever army they were in had helmets. The highest proportion of helmets used by Russians were uh, from the Russian units that were sent to France to fight on the Western Front, symbolically, and the ones that were sent to Salonika to fight with the French on the Balkan Front in, and I hesitate to use the term after our Neuilly episode, in Macedonia. Let's just, in its broadest geographical sense. Um, so they didn't develop the helmets because at the time when it was coming in vogue, there was resistance and the French were willing to export uh, helmets, ready-made helmets to them, is the short version of that answer. And of course, we have an Adrian helmet in our set, actually, which is a French uh, edition. I think it's from a Grenadier Regiment. Is that, is that how you pronounce it? Regiment? It'll do. <laughs> It'll do. And um, as far as I remember, the Adrian helmet was quite the export uh, wunderkind of the French army. Uh, the Italians wore it, the Serbs wore it, the Romanians got it. Um, it was also used by firefighters, by the police, uh, French, colonial troops, as you mentioned. Uh, so, you know, the Russians weren't the only ones that had demand for that helmet design. That's true, and they came out with an improved version, I think, in 1926. And the Russians also uh, improved on it and used it right up until just before uh, World War II. And I can't vouch 100%, but my gut tells me that I read somewhere recently that they actually did still issue some of them as a sort of emergency reserve in 1941. Wouldn't surprise me. All right, and we have another one. This one is from Vename. While in high school and after I read about the efforts by the United States to help starving people in Belgium during World War I through the Commissions for Relief in Belgium and Europe and Russia through the European Relief and Rehabilitation Administration and later the American Relief Administration, um, all three were or organized and led by Herbert Hoover. I don't remember any mention of him uh, or these organizations. As presented to me, these were significant in the effort and effects. Is this an exaggeration? Actually, I would say no, that's not an exaggeration. Um, we tend to underestimate and I guess in a way overlook the depth of the food crisis that existed in the late war period, uh, but especially the immediate post-war period, uh, in particular in Central and Eastern Europe and the Middle East people were starving in their millions. And it, it's something that doesn't get, I think, enough uh, attention about how much of an impact it had in this period. And US food aid was a major factor and a major policy initiative as well, both public and from uh, private donations. So Herbert Hoover got kind of a, I guess, a, a mixed reputation, uh, for lack of a better word, 
for stuff that he did later on, but he obviously had some skills as an administrator because he ran these giant relief efforts. And basically the biggest one, uh, in a way, was the American Relief Administration, which started off in early 1919, and it was eventually active in 23 countries. It ended up having a total budget of $100 million or so, matched by private donations. So this was a very big deal. I mean, we're talking a couple of billion uh, dollars in, in today's money. Um, the objective was to be apolitical. So in theory, it wasn't like a foreign policy tool uh, of the Americans. And they spent a lot of time in particular in uh, Poland, Russia and Armenia, although we're active in other places as well. It kind of started off as a thing to help children, but it eventually uh, expanded quite significantly. Um, for example, I made a note of a couple of stats about Poland in particular. Um, some people argue that stabilizing the new Polish state was made easier by the fact that the food crisis was somewhat lessened by American food coming in. They brought in 300,000 tons of food in the winter of 1919 to 1920. And there were like Polish-American women who volunteered to go over and uh, help to coordinate and give out the, the food. They expanded it to include uh, clothing as well uh, afterwards. And they even kept up the aid during the Polish-Soviet War uh, on both sides as the front sort of moved back and forth. Yeah, I've, uh, just to give you, an, I think, a geographic scale of that, uh, footage from the American Red Cross and American relief effort is something that I come across frequently and we use it a lot uh, in our show. I think I've seen footage basically from anywhere from Hamburg to Beirut or even Cairo. And I've probably also seen footage from anywhere from Vladivostok to Warsaw. Yeah, uh, they were all over the place. And interestingly, given the context of international relations with the Russian Revolution and so on, the ARA was uh, active even after the Bolsheviks had basically taken control of the whole country and won the civil war. So they only left Russia in 1923. And they ended up at the peak of their activity in Russia, feeding more than 10 million people a day. Uh, so that is a massive effort and went a long way towards helping limit the effects of the massive famine of 1921, uh, since they arrived kind of as that reached its uh, peak, so to speak. All right, um, these were two of the Patreon questions. We have a few more on the list and we'll see what we can do to answer them uh, in the new decade, in the new year, Drama. 1920, 2020. Um, which means, you know, when the decade is turning or the year is turning, that actually means that's like one year of Jesse being on the show. It's one year of the Great War being produced by uh, the company that me and Tony set up, Real Time History, and I would say 1919 was a turbulent year, but I'm not exaggerating when I say uh, 2019 was also an, a turb <laughs> turbulent year. Less violent, less revolutionary, less starving, but overall I have to say that was a wild ride. So what do you say, Jesse Alexander, after about a year at the Great War now? Yeah, it has been a wild ride. Uh, you kind of 
I don't know, you never know what you're going to get when you put yourself out there. And I mean, I remember us talking at the beginning, uh, you know, we don't know how it's going to go. We don't know if this is going to be a temporary thing, if people are going to, you know, stick with us, are going to come back. Uh, we weren't sure about, you know, what we, how the new format we were thinking about, longer, more in-depth, was going to work, how people might react to me taking over from indie and so on. Um, I hadn't done a ton of work in front of the camera before, so that was a totally new experience for me. And to be honest, I mean, I've done work as a public historian before, but never really in a way in front of like 100 or 200 or 300,000 people at a time. So that was pretty new. Just always imagine all of them naked. Right, right, right. I got enough to do to try and, to try and uh, get the, the script down right. But anyway, uh, to make a long story short, I've had a great time. There were times when uh, I sort of thought, man, I'm, I'm on a roller coaster here, or how is the next comment section going to be, and so on. But um, I really want to thank uh, all of our listeners, and especially obviously the you Patreon people who are listening to this exclusive podcast for your support and for your encouragement in the comments. You really helped me uh, make some decisions about my style, uh, about what works well, and to kind of sort of stick to my guns when reactions were mixed, uh, especially at the beginning. And I think in the end, I'm really proud of, uh, of what we've been able to do together and also kind of proud of my own progress as, uh, as a writer and a host of the show. And I feel like um, when I'm writing the episodes, I can kind of feel that flow and already kind of have a sense, oh, people are going to like this, or I think this would be cool, you know, that the, the viewers will react well, and ah, yeah, they'll want to know about this. So uh, I'm starting to feel that vibe and that connection um, in the last half a year, let's say. So uh, yeah, it's been wild, but, uh, but good. Yeah. That's also how I would describe it. Um, it's hard to say, uh, how to believe that it's already been 12, like 12 months ago, me and Tony were kind of like starting to iron out, you know, some legal things about, okay, what kind of legal form should our company have? Uh, you know, what are the prerequisites to do that? Uh, you know, how do you go, like, making an appointment with a notary, that kind of stuff. Looking for, you know, I needed at least a desk and an address for the company where I could work. And uh, that has been pretty wild. At the same time, you know, basically improvising on the spot some new ideas how a 1919 Great War concept could work because we knew it would, it would need to be a bit different. Just because 1919 and the following years were different after the, you know, great power conflict kind of thing. Also because, um, you know, Indy was gone um, and just, you know, for you behind the cameras, what you can't always see, but, you know, in the beginning it was just basically me, Tony and you. And we used to be more, much more people. If you see some of the old team photos, you know, we had like double the team size at one point. So, which of course, you know, while also managing German bureaucracy and, you know, all that kind of stuff, um, pulling off the Great War, needed to be something that we can do in a you know in, in a different time format so to speak so that's what that's how we said like okay we need to do like longer episodes be a bit more flexible on the release schedule and say like two episodes a month um, 
So that was pretty wild and I had no idea how the people would react to it and I'm pretty happy how people reacted. Um, and yeah, I think uh, after a year, successful year 1919, 2019 for the Great War, uh, we're kind of at the moment figuring out a bit okay the new decade is coming the you know the 1920s that, that had that in Germany and I think also across the world that has a certain ring to it the roaring 20s uh, in Germany it's called the golden Zwanziger, the golden 20s um, you know partying debauchery drugs revolution new world order more wars and everything um, so we're kind of thinking, okay, there we will continue. That's what we said, of course. But I think there's also a time at the moment towards the end of the year where we reflect a bit and think about things that we might change actually for the Great War in terms of like give it, give it a fresh coat of paint, uh, move some stuff stuff around, uh, re, you know, rearranging some things, thinking about what we could do better with the scripts. And of course, for that kind of thing, um, actually, we would like to have some opinions from you. Like, if you have any ideas, any things that you would love to see, um, or just, you know, for example, one, one thing that, I've, that we never really thought about is the channel now has 700 videos or so. And I just asked myself, you know, that's something that came to mind yesterday. Is like, if somebody comes to the channel now and has never heard about it, how is he not completely floored by the you know huge offering of videos that we have floundering in the mass of yeah. of material so basically. there's there's you know a huge amount of content do you want to start with indie from 5 years ago are you I, I mean i think it's possible now that people come here and say like hey i don't know anything about the interwar period and i just want to start with 1919 or i have certain topics that interest me that I want to find and check out these videos specifically, how do I find it? So any new fans that are actually also listening to this, if you could, if you can remember it, could you let me know what your experience was finding the channel and figuring your way out? Because I think that would be valuable for us to maybe smooth in the onboarding process, so to speak, to find for people finding the Great War. Like we kind of thinking maybe we should do an episode guide, maybe we should, you know, put the videos or and, you know some matrix of the videos on our website to make it easier for people to find it. That sort of things. That's like ideas that are floating through our head. And you know we're also working hard on merchandise. Um, we're going to all around double down on a lot of our efforts. Uh, you will see the fruits of these of that labor. You know in the upcoming month in the new year. And in the meantime, we all wish you happy holidays, Merry Christmas and a good start into the new decade. Indeed. And as far as content for 1920 is concerned, as far as the topics are concerned, there is no shortage. Um, a lot of people have asked about the Irish Civil War. Well, it really starts heating up in 1920, so we're going to talk about that. There's the Polish-Soviet War that uh, really gets going in dramatic fashion. All sorts of stuff is still going on in Russia. Um, the Reds have kind of more or less won the civil war, but the peasants are not finished. And of course, the Middle East gets completely remade. And we've still got two uh, peace treaties to cover, Trianon in June and Sèvres, which is a bit of a special case in August. So uh, I'm, looking forward to, uh, I'm looking forward to those. Yep. And of course, you know, 
uh, we saw the first political steps uh, of a certain Lance Corporal Hitler uh, in a recent episode. Uh, let's just say his political career is far from over. And neither was that of his uh, role model, in a sense, uh, a guy from Italy. Yeah. So with that being said, uh, thank you for your support for this year. Uh, it has been a wild ride. It will continue to be a roller coaster and a wild ride. Um, we're welcoming any kind of feedback you might have. And in the meantime, we wish you happy holidays, Merry Christmas, good start into the new decade and the new year. And we will hear you next year. Until 1920, Joyeux Noël, Joyeux Année and Snowvim Gordon.